Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. David Spivey is a young pastor from Galax, Virginia. He has a tender love for God, a sincere heart, and a passion for souls. I know you'll enjoy this message preached at the Ides Convention in Dayton, Ohio in 2016. He titles it, From Ichabod to Ebenezer. I know you'll enjoy this wonderful sermon. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Brother Sankey. Appreciate uh, the invitation to come and preach this morning. I am very aware that there are men much more worthy and capable than I this morning, but I did feel that the Lord wanted me to accept this invitation, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, how fitting that Brother Hayford, my Bible college president, who tried to help me see that I was called to preach for four years, uh, should be here to pray before I uh, start this message this morning. <clears throat> I want to begin by pointing out, I, I think sometimes I've had the gift of, of uh, pointing out the obvious, and uh, I want to share two obvious but painful truths to begin. Number one, I am balding. Number two, I am graying. I just did not intend uh, to show you that so poignantly, so clearly. Uh, I made the tragic mistake uh, last week of trying to save my wife, my normal barber time, and going to a new barber, and you see the results. Uh, so, uh, such is life. I invite your attention to 1 Samuel chapter 4, as well as 1 Samuel chapter 7, 1 Samuel chapter 4, 1 Samuel chapter 7. I'd like to lift some verses from both of these passages. Join me in standing, if you would, in honor to the word of the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 4. How I appreciate the special singing of the Maleys, the anointing upon them. Appreciate God's sweet presence. Hallelujah. Begin with verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 4. And the word of the Lord came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines pitched in Aphek. Skipping down to verse 10. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten, and they fled every man into his tent. And there went, or excuse me, there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. I'd like to skip over to 1 Samuel chapter 7 now, beginning our reading in verse 9. 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning our reading in verse 9. 
And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came under Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. I'd like to preach with the help of the Holy Ghost this morning from this thought, the unlikely journey from Ichabod to Ebenezer. The unlikely journey from Ichabod to Ebenezer. Blessed Holy Ghost, we thank you for your presence. Thank you, God, this morning that you are enough. Lord, we thank you that your word will not return empty, but it will accomplish that whereto you have sent it. I'm asking you to hide me behind the cross, Lord. Help me to say, Lord, what's supposed to be said. Help me to be silent, Lord, where I need to be silent. Help me to preach with the anointing and power and help of God, we pray. Lord, we love you this morning. We appreciate you deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. In these two passages we read out of 1 Samuel, we find the children of Israel at the same location, Ebenezer. On two different occasions, we find them here with two tragically or tr drastically different results. The first time in 1 Samuel chapter 4 involved a total defeat at the hands of their arch enemy, the Philistines. The second incident, which took place some 20 years later, ends with the Philistines being resoundingly defeated and subdued in their own land and the cities had, which had been taken by them restored to Israel. To top it off, this victory over the Philistines was sustained all the days of Samuel. And that's where we find Samuel raising the stone of Ebenezer. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us in testimony to that victory. So what made the difference? Why did one encounter at, at Ebenezer with the Philistines result in a devastating defeat? And another encounter with the Philistines, the very same arch enemy, result in a resounding rout of this treacherous enemy. I believe we're going to find that this morning as we look into God's word. I first want to notice in the defeat of Ebenezer what the conditions were. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were the priests. The Philistines uh, were arrayed in battle against them. And the first battle went horribly. 4,000 lives lost. Now, we read those numbers, and sometimes, if we're not careful, we just kind of pass over them. It's just a number. But you understand, those were fathers, and those were, were or grandfathers, possibly. Those were young men that had dreams and ambitions. And because of disobedience, because of the spiritual condition of God's people at that time, 4,000 lives lost, gone. We look at the cause of this defeat. For you know, you and I know that there are always reasons for spiritual defeat in our lives, always. There's always an underlying cause, a background reason. I first want to note the spirit of that age. It was a spirit of lawlessness. Judges chapter 21 verse 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. 
Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It is always dangerous, friends. It's always a dangerous sign when someone has the spirit of, I know better than everyone else. I speak especially to my generation and the younger ones. It is deeply concerning to me when I sense an attitude that our traditional guidelines of holy living are scoffed at as being a little out of touch or mostly unnecessary or even sometimes downright ridiculous. I do understand and agree that there are legitimate points to be made regarding some extra biblical standards that have been overly emphasized. But friends, I'm afraid we are witnessing far too often individuals throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It is though they or sometimes we are saying, all that really matters is how I see it. None of that, none of this really applies to me. Let me respond kindly but clearly by saying these things. If the Lord has never talked to you about what you wear, there could be a spirit of lawlessness in your life. I remember when I had gotten saved there uh, in California at the Rancho Cucamonga Bible Missionary Camp. Just a few months later, I was at camp meeting at Gospel Center in Phoenix, Arizona. I was trying to follow the Lord with my whole heart. I remember entering that, uh, 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 that sanctuary there at Gospel Center. I remember uh, in that day, some of you might remember this, uh, I wore my pants uh, folded over, you know, the cool way. And I remember entering that church and I think maybe I had come early for prayer or maybe just come to the service. I remember entering that, that sanctuary and the Lord speaking to me and saying, David, why are you wearing your pants that way? Now, you look at me and you think, well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> why would you wear your pants that way? But friends, the Holy Ghost was doing something in me because he knew that I was wearing them that way to identify with a certain group. <laughs> but you see, God had changed my heart and he was continuing to change my heart. And friends, I unfolded my pants, I believe it was that day, and I've never worn it that way since then except to illustrate, though I think I probably could and not have any issue with pride. If the Lord never talks to you about what you watch, there could be in your life a spirit of lawlessness, friend. It concerns me that I know there are groups maybe that we would sometimes disagree with and just kind of look at in a skeptical way that maybe have drawn some lines in some areas of technology and we would say, well, they've just gone a little bit too far. But friends, it concerns me. When we go to the other extreme and we just act like we can just watch whatever and we can click on whatever and it really doesn't affect me. It's really not that big a deal. But friends, that's not how the Spirit of God works. God has always been concerned with holy carefulness and He will always work that way in our lives. If the Lord doesn't talk to you about where you go and where you don't go, then friends, there could be a spirit of lawlessness. There could be an attitude of, I do what's right in my own eyes. If the Lord doesn't talk to you about what you've said or maybe what you didn't say when you should have, friends, there could be a spirit of lawlessness. 
who we spend our time with, what we listen to, and on and on and on the list goes. And friends, don't think that we can't be susceptible to falling into the trap that Israel did long ago and the, 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 the dangerous, subtle uh, lie of Satan that we can kind of live the way we want and that little areas of obedience, little issues don't really matter. Friends, God says they do. I know all of us aren't going to see every issue exactly the same. God didn't call us to be uniform. He called us to be in holy unity. But friends, God will work. We will not go deep with God and not find that God begins to work in the minutia of our life to deal with us and mold us and make us into a vessel of honor, sanctified meat for the master's use. In that day, there was a spirit of lawlessness. I do what I want. I see it how I see it. There was scriptural or there was spiritual corruption. The priests were leading the people in wickedness. It's hard for us to imagine. Scripture says in 1 Samuel 2, the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. And oh God, deliver us. Deliver us from unconverted spiritual leadership. Verse 17, wherefore the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Men hated to go in the house of God because of who they were going to interact with. May that never be the case, friends, in our churches, in our spheres of influence. May people be drawn because of our holiness, because of our spiritual life. May they be drawn to the master, not turned away. There was spiritual carelessness and apathy. Eli, the high priest, selfishly failed to deal firmly with the sins of his sons. Tragically, it not only cost him at a personal level, but at a national level as well. Scripture says, Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto Israel and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of congregation. And Eli said unto them, why do you such things? For I hear of your evil doings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress. And it goes on to say, notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father because the Lord would slay them. Friends, it was too little, too late. You see, years before this, imagine with me, you can imagine how Eli was dealing with Phineas and Hophni. They were just little boys at this point. They were doing something they weren't supposed to do and Eli just kind of said, now Johnny, no, I mean Hophni, <laughs> you know. Hophni, if you don't stop doing that, I'm gonna give you the count of three. One, two, Two and a half, two and three quarter. Now friends, I do not believe I'm very far off on this. Hophni and Phinehas did not get to the apostasy where we find them in this passage without a whole lot of neglect on daddy's part years before this. Dad failing to deal 
deal with things that he knew deep in his heart. I'm convinced he knew deep in his heart he needed to deal with that little spirit of rebellion. He needed to deal with that little fit. He needed to deal with that little attitude, but he just didn't have time for it. He just, you know, he just, it was kind of cute at first. By the time it wasn't cute, it was out of hand. You see, these sons of Eli had been tragically neglected in being dealt with early on. Count on it, there was selfish failure on Eli's part from the beginning. I'm convinced that years before, Hophni and Phinehas were forcibly demanding the meat sacrifices to be given them raw. Years before they were doing that, they had been allowed by their daddy to throw fits and get their own way without swift and clear discipline. Long before they were fornicating in the tabernacle, they no doubt were allowed to be alone with the opposite sex when dad should have been more in tune or simply said no. Years before they had taken positions of Levitical priesthood, Eli had failed to carry a deep soul burden for their souls and to make certain they knew the Lord before they led the people. Parents, will we require obedience? Will we be in tune with our children and carry a deep burden for their souls? Pastors, will we recognize our congregation's deep needs, pray and fast with a burden, and love enough both to woo them and to warn them? Presidents of Bible colleges and denominational conferences, will we prioritize deep piety and definite power with God over prestige and any approbation of fleshly accomplishment or ability? (laughs) You see, we don't get to places of apostasy by accident. There are a lot of little decisions on the way there. There's a lot of excusing and a lot of saying that doesn't matter and a lot of ignoring the still small voice long before we get to where Hophni and Phinehas are. You see, God was faithful. God was faithful. 1 Samuel chapter 2 says, There came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? Did I give, uh, and did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? Wherefore, they said to Eli, wherefore, this man said, kick ye at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honored thy sons above me. Now, I don't believe Eli would have ever said that. He never would have said he was putting his sons before God, but he was. And the man of God poignantly stated it. And then it goes on to say, the prophet goes on to say, to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. I know it doesn't clearly, clearly say this, but I intimate from this passage. I intimate from this passage that Eli just very possibly had a love for food. Now you say, David Spivey, I do too. And I would have to agree with you, I do too. 
You see, I think there were some weaknesses right here in Eli's life. I think he reached a point that is talked about, I believe it's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, when it speaks of some of the signs of the last days. And it says that men and women are lovers of pleasure. It does not stop there. Because you see, God made pleasure. He designed for us to enjoy good food. And we could go on down the list of the things that you enjoy and the things I enjoy. Friends, that wasn't the problem. It says, the mark of the last days is that men love pleasure more than they loved God. And somewhere along the journey, Eli had moved from God being in first place to his own appetites, his own interests, his own preferences being first place. I have a feeling it wasn't a radical shift. I have a feeling it was very incremental. I think he just slowly began to cool off. Little by little, he just began to ignore warning signs in his sons and even in his own life. Just little by little, inch by inch, step by step. Until the man of God comes speaking with power and directness. You love your sons more than you love God. You're concerned about your body's appetites more than you are about the worship of Jehovah. God help me. You see, when push comes to shove many times, we fail as spiritual leaders simply because we are too lazy or too fearful that we might lose face or favor. See, conventional wisdom instructs us that movements, institutions, churches, businesses, most importantly families, rise and fall by their leadership. It matters who is in charge. It matters what they are and are not allowing. It matters what the direction is and what the direction is not. Those details matter. You see, in, uh, going on, the last point there, spiritual famine was the result. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord was precious. We understand that the King James English does not mean there that it was wonderful, it was sweet. It means that it was rare. It was a special treat if they got a word from the Lord. Friends, it's no wonder that modern Christendom enjoys good, godly music at times because they're not feasting on it as often as we are. Many of them, it doesn't take a, a, a real powerful anointed message to, to, to make them say, oh, that was wonderful because they haven't tasted of the depths that we have, friends. <laughs> and so they'd hear a little snippet of God's word. Maybe Eli would share some little devotional when he should have been speaking a powerful anointed message of truth. He'd share a little devotional and the people say, isn't that so wonderful? And don't misunderstand, it was. It was the word of God. But they should have been hearing something that was dealing with the root issues of their heart. They were coming in looking for a little encouragement when God wanted to deal, do work surgery. In summary, the Israelites were valuing religious right over real righteousness. They were valuing visible relics, the ark, etc., over vital relationship with Jehovah God. They had an outward form, but that was over inward fidelity and truth in their lives. 
Truly, it could be said of the Israelites at this point, at this juncture, they had a form of godliness, but denied the power thereof. So it's no surprise when we come to chapter 4 that the ark was taken. They were presuming. They had the false idea that they could go to the forms of godliness and find the power to have victory. Friend, that's never been the case. The forms of godliness are very important. But without godliness, without heart hunger, without real vital relationship, the forms aren't enough. So the ark was taken. God allowed the ark of the covenant to be taken by the enemy. The Israelites were defeated. And Phineas' wife accurately assesses the cause of the chaos when she states Ichabod. The glory of God has departed from Israel. Friends, again, that did not happen overnight. Phineas' wife was accurately assessing the problem. But you see, she was, and I don't mean to be too hard on her, but I want to turn a little corner here. She was apathetic in her action. She just seemed to accept that this is the way it has to be. Leadership has failed, and they had, her husband being one of them. What else can we do? Ichabod. Friends, if I'm not, if you're not, if we're not careful, we can become very good at assessing the problems. That's not hard. All of us are pretty good at it. At least we feel like we are. But too many times that's as far as we go. We talk about how we're concerned about this. And we probably need to be. We talk about, did you hear about this institution or this denomination or this church or this pastor or this individual or this leader? And we assess it and we put our judgment on it. And many times we could be right. She was, it God's glory had departed. But friends, it's not enough to merely accurately assess the situation. That's not enough. It wasn't enough for Phineas' wife. That didn't make the difference. That didn't bring her where she needed to be with God. May God help us right here to recognize that we need to move beyond being merely concerned and stating it. Over the last few years, there has been a cry that has welled up in my heart. Lord, don't let me just see the problems. Anyone can do that. But Lord, help me. Help David Spivey to be part of the solution. <laughs> I can't do it all, but I want to be guilty of doing my part. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You see, there was another woman. There was another woman besides Phineas' wife that Scripture tells us about during this time period. I know it was some years before this, but the conditions of the land were still very much the same. Her name was Hannah. You see, she was in this dark chapter of Israel's history. She was experiencing great sorrow, deep loss. 
But she approached it all in an entirely different manner than Phineas's wife did. And it made all the difference not only for her, but her family and even her nation. You see, she was barren. Now, don't misunderstand. She had a fine husband. She likely had a nice house. She had a lot going for her. She probably was a very attractive lady. It wasn't as though her whole life was wrong or out of whack. She had a lot to be thankful for. But Hannah understood one thing. The deepest longing of her soul was not satisfied. Man. And beyond our positions, beyond what others think of us or don't think of us, friends, God wants to satisfy the deep longings of our soul. It wasn't enough when her husband said, am I not, am I not enough for thee for, I don't remember the number, but several sons? Huh. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't because she longed to be a mother. She longed to have children. She longed not to be barren, but to be fruitful. Do we? <laughs> oh, Lord. Do we long to be fruitful? She began to do what her situation forced her to do. Now, I say forced her. Many others did not do this, but she reached a point where there was nothing else to do but turn to God. Praise the Lord for when he gets us to that point. <laughs> to where we recognize there's nothing else. We've reached the end of our hoarded resources. We've talked to all the people we can think to talk to. We've found the counsel, all the best counsel we know how to get. And all of that has its place. Friends, there's no substitute for you and for me getting down humbly before God and beginning to pour out our souls in agony to him, pouring out our souls and then stopping and letting him speak to us, letting him deal and correct and prompt and stir and move in our souls. There's no substitute for that, friend. And her intensity began to increase. It says there, I believe it's in uh, chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. It says that, oh, excuse me, chapter 1, she prayed in verse 10. And then verse 12, she continued praying. Verse 15, she poured out her soul. Verse 8 says she wept. Verse 10 says she wept sore. Verse 8 says she grieved. Verse 10 says she was in bitterness of soul. Verse 10 says she prayed. Verse 11 says she vowed. Samuel Chadwick said there is no power like that of prevailing prayer. Of Abraham pleading for Sodom. Jacob wrestling in the stillness of the night. Moses standing in the breach. Hannah intoxicated with sorrow. David heartbroken with remorse and grief. Jesus in the sweat of blood. Add to this list from the records of the church your personal observation and experience, he says. And always there is the cost of passion unto blood. Such prayer prevails. It turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. Best of all, it brings God. See, Hannah got low before God. 
And then she stated her desire very clearly. In fact, she went even beyond what we could have justified. We probably could have justified her saying, you know what, Lord, I want a child. Just give me any child, Lord. That's not what Hannah did. Hannah said, I want a man child. She got very specific with God and she asked God for more than just the basics. Don't misunderstand. It's not about male or female here. I'm talking about her hunger to have the best she knew to ask God for. Well, do you know that she asked to be pregnant? Now, understand what I'm trying to say here. She asked for something that would prove to be, when it came, at least initially, very inconvenient. Let's not forget that when we ask God for things, when we get serious about asking God for things, he just might answer, and when the answer comes, it might involve some inconveniences that we were not expecting. (laughs) The morning sickness came. I don't know for her, but very possibly. The crazy cravings, the perpetual discomfort, sleepless nights, the whole nine yards of pregnancy. But do you think for one second Hannah regretted it? (laughs) Not on your life. She stayed with her burden until it was birthed. Lord, help us here. Lord, help me. So we would get past just assessing the problem, assessing the need, pointing out this issue and this danger and this thing and that and on and on our list can go until we just ourselves get before God and say, God, I want a man child. Lord, I'm tired of talking about how there's a need for revival. Lord, I just want revival. Of course, it involves a complete consecration of herself and her son. As far as, as far as Hannah knew, Samuel was her only child, and she was giving him fully back to the Lord. In her focused faithfulness, Hannah purposed to raise Samuel and believe God for Samuel, even when she put him in the hands of men like Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. She was a faithful, focused, godly woman woman who was intent even in her time frame, even in the apostasy of that age. She was intent on Samuel being God's. You see, this one barren, broken woman turned the entire spiritual tide of a nation because she grew personally desperate enough to go before God until he answered prayer. God brought his glory back to Israel through a little woman who stopped pointing the blame and started pleading the promises. Don't misunderstand, friends. God holds, undoubtedly holds those of us who are in leadership responsible. But this morning, if we are waiting on IH convention to bring revival, we will likely be sorely disappointed. I'm not casting stones at IH convention. That's not my point. But if we're waiting till this pastor, this preacher, this movement, this denomination, we're waiting on them for them to bring us revival, we're going to be disappointed. 
Revival across the years has begun at a personal level. See, on the authority of God's word and by the testimony of a little desperate Hebrew lady, if you and I individually as God's people will humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways, he will hear from heaven, forgive sin and heal our land. So 20 years have passed since the first encounter at Ebenezer. We find in chapter seven, now Samuel is influencing the people. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas have passed on. Friends, God knows how to deal. God knows how to take care of those who would be hindering the advancement of God's work. I, I say that carefully, but if we could just stop trying to manipulate and trying to do this and that and vote this and that. I mean, vote our conscience, do what we feel like God's telling us to do. But friends, move beyond trying to get our hands involved and fix the issues. I don't mean faithfully warn when God puts his thumb in our backs. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about in the flesh, trying to manipulate things. Friends, that's not God's way. Now they're... 20 years later, they're back at the same location. They've brought the ark back. Verse 2 of chapter 7 says, And it came to pass, while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jerim, that the time was long, for it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. There was desire that began to be birthed in their souls. Verse three, there began to be a direction and Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel saying, if ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtoreth from among you. When God begins to work on us, count on it, he begins to deal with the things that have been the hindrances. The false gods, whatever they are, children, finances, work, priorities, position, etc., etc. What others think, the false gods will be dealt with and they will have to go every time. Samuel began to say to them, if you want God to work, if you want God to bring victory here, begin to prepare your hearts, begin to set aside the things, throw away Cast aside the things that have been hindering you and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So that turned into action. Verses four through six, we find that they confessed, they repented and they acted. Essentially, they just simply obeyed. They just obeyed. God would help us to again learn the simplicity. God's not asking you and me to figure out all the details. He's not even asking us to figure out all the reasons why he's telling us to do what he's telling us to do. But friends, we never move beyond spiritual defeat until we get to the point where we're willing to simply obey the Lord. I'm not talking about other people's ideas necessarily. 
I'm not talking about things that you might wonder if it's the Lord, but I'm talking about when the Lord gets right down to it and he keeps bringing you to the same issue and to the same thing. You know, if you've had him deal with you, you know what I'm talking about. And he brings you right to this issue. And we try to sidestep him. We try to avoid it. We try to get around it. But he brings us right to this issue. And he brings us back there if needs be. And he brings us back there if needs be. Too many times I've tried to change the Lord's mind. And I find out he keeps his opinion. (laughs) When it's all said and done. It was just simple obedience to the clear commands of God that brought Israel back to a place of faith and victory. Now, they did this and you would just think, well, that's it. (laughs) But it says right there in 1 Samuel chapter 7 that they no sooner had repented, obeyed, than the Philistines show up. Don't be surprised that as you take steps of obedience towards God, as you begin to seek God in desperation that people misunderstand or attack. Don't be surprised if the enemy shows up, or I should say when the enemy shows up. For he will not lose ground without contesting it. And the battle came and the people feared, but this time they had obeyed. It was a profound difference. This time the false gods were gone. This time the worship of Ashtoreth was gone. There was grounds for believing. There's not grounds for believing, friends, when we have issues that God's not fully dealt with yet. But they had grounds for believing. They had obeyed. They'd gotten rid of the things God had talked to them about. And so it's no surprise that we get to the next few verses, the latter part of chapter seven, we find out that God brought full deliverance. I mean, it was so full. It was so full that the Bible says they had rest from the Philistines all the days of Samuel after this point. Oh, thank God. (laughs) Oh, to get issues so settled in our hearts that we never have to deal with them again to get a direction so settled that it never continues to cycle up, to cycle up. (laughs) But that's in the past. God gave me victory over that way back there, and it's never hounded me again. Thank the Lord. So here they are back at the same place that 20 years later they had suffered a miserable defeat at. 34,000, I believe it was, 34,000 lives lost. Now, what a marvelous difference because a lady named Hannah quit pointing the blame and she just got hungry for God to deal with her barrenness. Friends, that's all that mattered. That's all that mattered to her and that's all it really amounted to. One little lady hungry for God to make her fruitful. And from that agonizing prayer came Samuel, that godly influence that shifted the direction of Israel. 
which was directly responsible for this passage in chapter 7 as Samuel gave them the clear word of the Lord. But it wasn't just one message. They had been watching his life. There had been changes being made, I'm convinced, all the way up to this point in the nation of Israel. And because one little broken, barren lady got serious about seeking after God, even when the religious leaders thought she was drunk, thought she was crazy, thought she was a little different, that did not matter. <laughs> Lord, move me beyond worrying what others are thinking. Lord, move me beyond that. We're human, we care. But oh, friends, that God would get us past the point of getting tied up and bound and we just say, I'm hungry. I want to be fruitful. I want God to have his way in me. Hannah did that, and it made all the difference. I was at a revival conference some years ago. In that conference, there was a simple statement that has stuck with me to this hour. Revival is God. It's so simplistic, we could maybe miss it. I know there are fuller and broader definitions, but I'm not sure there is a better definition of revival. And simply, revival is God. It was exactly 12 noon on September 23rd, 1857. A tall, middle-aged former businessman climbed creaking stairs to the third story of an old church building in the heart of lower New York City. He entered an empty room, pulled out his pocket watch, and sat down to wait. The placard outside the door read prayer meeting from 12 to 1 o'clock. Stop 5, 10, or 20 minutes, or the whole hour, as your time admits. It looked like no one had the time. As the minutes ticked by, the solitary waiter wondered if it were all a mistake. For some three months, he had been visiting boarding houses, shops, and offices, inviting people to the 88-year-old Old Dutch North Church at Fulton and William Street. The church had fallen on slim days. Old families had moved away. The business neighborhood was teeming with a floating population of immigrants and laborers. Other churches had gotten out. Many thought that Old Dutch should just throw in the towel. But the trustees determined on a last-ditch stand. They decided to hire a lay missionary to conduct a visitation program. The man they picked was Jeremiah Lanfear. He was a merchant who had no experience whatsoever in church visitation work. In fact, at 49, Lanfear gave up his trade position to knock on doors for a salary of less than $1,000 a year. The going was slow. A few families came, but often Lanfear returned to his room in the church, consistent, uh, um, weary and discouraged. At such times, he, this is quotes, spread out his sorrows before the Lord, end quote, and never failed to draw new strength from these times of prayer. 
While going his rounds of visitation, the idea occurred to Lanfear that businessmen might like to get away for a short period of prayer once a week while offices were closed at noon. With permission of church officials, Lanfear passed out handbills and put up the placard. And when the day of the first meeting came, he was the only one on hand for it. He waited 10 minutes, then 10 more. The minute hand of his watch pointed to 1230, when at last he heard a step on the stairs. One man came in, then another, and another, until there were six. After a few minutes of prayer, the meeting was dismissed with the decision that another meeting would be held the following Wednesday. That small meeting was in no way extraordinary. There was no great outpouring of the Spirit of God. Lanfear had no way of knowing that that prayer meeting, that effort, that attempt was the beginning of a great national revival which would sweep an estimated one million persons into the kingdom of God. But you see, Lanfear came to this point because of a personal crisis, or at least in large part. You see, his dedication to this work came only after a struggle and total surrender to God. He testifies, the subject was laid upon my heart and was a matter of constant consideration for some time. At last, I resolved to give myself to the work and I shall never forget with what force at the time those words came home to my soul. Tis done, the great transactions done. I am my Lord's and he is mine. He drew me and I followed on, charmed to confess the voice divine. You see, if God could use even the feeble efforts, though they were faithful, though they were sanctified, though they were anointed, the feeble efforts of a layman made named Jeremiah Lanfear to start a prayer meeting that would help usher in the third great awakening, friends, surely he could use you and he could use me to help work some reviving change where we're planted. Not talking about changing the world, I'm talking about brightening the corner where we are. I'm talking about making a difference in a soul in your family and a soul next door and a soul in your congregation and a soul down the road and a soul at your workplace making the difference because we have a burning fire in our souls that comes because we have sought God. We've waited on God until the reviving fires are burning. <laughs> you see, time after time through scripture, through history, Revivals have been born on the sim simple but desperate action of one or two or three or four individuals. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced this morning that God has not changed. That it still comes down to Hannah's and Lamphere's and Evan Roberts, Roberts and you and me merely getting hungry enough and tearing before God. We say, Lord, do whatever you have to do to deal with my barrenness. I guess to stand this morning. G. Campbell Morgan visited the Welsh Revival of 1904. 
After witnessing the scenes of that revival in Wales, he returned to Westminster Chapel in London and declared, here is revival that comes from heaven. This is the great G. Campbell Morgan. Here is revival that comes from heaven, he said. There is no preaching, no order, no hymn books, no choirs, no organs, no collections, and finally no advertising. Now think of that for a moment, he said. There were organs, but they were silent. There were ministers, but there was no preaching. They were among the people praising God. Yet the Welsh revival is a revival of preaching, for everybody is preaching, Campbell said. No order, and yet it moves from day to day, county to county, with matchless precision, Campbell said. And with the order of an attacking force. No songbooks, but all me, he said. I nearly wept over the singing. When the Welsh sing, they abandon themselves to the singing. No choir, did I say? It was all choir. Campbell wrote. Why? Because a man named Evan Roberts got hungry enough for God that he began to seek until God came. Friends, I just wonder how many this morning would say, I'm hungry for God to deal with my barrenness. I'm hungry for a move of God and I want God to do in me what he wants to do to work the kind of change that he wants to work in my generation on my watch. Not what was done back there or what we hope to see forward and ahead, but my watch right now, today. All eyes closed and heads bowed. Just wonder if there'd be ones that would just slip out and make their way forward and just say, God, God, I'm hungry. (laughs) It's between you and God what that involves. God, I'm hungry. Lord, I want to be fruitful. (laughs) Lord, I'm longing to see a stone of Ebenezer raised. Lord, I want you to deal with and, Lord, pinpoint the things that might be hindering, Lord. As we heard preached about this morning, bitterness or restitutions or adjustments or whatever the false gods, whatever the weights that does so easily beset. There would be in us a hunger. God, work, reviving, change, through me. Lord, if you have to humble me to be a Hannah, where others look on and think I'm a little bit crazy, Lord, I'm willing for that. Lord, if you could just make me fruitful, it'd all be worth it, Lord. Oh, blessed Jesus. And I would ask that God would help us as we would lift out together, as we would hunger after God this morning, asking him to have his sweet right of way in our hearts and our lives this morning. Glory to his name. Father, we bless your name. We thank you, Lord, that you are still on the throne. 
We thank you for your faithful word, Lord, that does not return empty. We thank you, Lord, that you know us to the core of our beings. We thank you, Lord, that nothing passes by your eye. Lord, this morning we're asking, Lord, that you would be exalted among us. Lord, we're asking, oh God, that you would work life change. That you would work, oh God, oh, that which you want to work in us. Praise the Lord. Let's lift and pray, friends. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. That has been passed. I don't want to lose the fight. I don't want to lose the fight.